Welcome to Conservation Unfiltered, presented by Conserve the Wild, your destination for an unfiltered look at conservation. Now let's get wild. Welcome back to another episode of the Conservation Unfiltered podcast. I'm your host, Jason Creighton. Today we have episode number 53, Why Do You Hunt?, First, I want to thank everyone for sticking around after our one-week hiatus. You know, things in life going on. Every once in a while, you just sort of need a break. And part of that break was because I had a wonderful conversation right before then with today's guest, Robbie Kroger. He is the mastermind behind Blood Origins. If you haven't watched Blood Origins on uh, YouTube or on Amazon Prime, I highly recommend you go do that right now before we talk. They're great for a wide range of reasons. One of the reasons is they're very short, anywhere between 8 and 15 minutes, but they're very deep and they really get you thinking. Now, a quick background on Robbie. He actually originates from South Africa. He came to America to pursue a Ph.D. in biology and aquatic biogeochemistry. He started hunting late in life as an adult, and he found himself needing to answer the question, why do people hunt? Why do I hunt? So he started Blood Origins, and it's basically a video docu-series. It's interviews with people who hunt about why it is. That you hunt, and he's using it as a means to figure out for himself and his boys what he calls the truth about hunting. So, we're going to talk about that video project. We're going to talk about what the hunting journey looks like for different people and why hunting is important. And that's a tough question to answer. You know, it's, that's tough because for everyone, the reason why it's important to them is going to be slightly different. So, this is a little bit heavy. He's great. He is awesome as far as being able to really express different mindsets um, and and his thoughts. It it was an awesome conversation. So I'm not going to delay it any longer. Let's just get right in with Robbie. Before we start, you have any questions for me or anything about anything oh i may push you a little bit i may ask you some questions myself because that's just who we are as a project so hey that i'm i am completely open with that however okay. that, that does scare me a little because um i've seen the tears flowing on your show <laughs> <laughs> i don't know that i necessarily want to be that guy but i <clears throat> but the one yeah. guy that i thought i would never be able to break or crack a guy called Brendan Burns. I don't know who, you, if you know who Brendan Burns is. Not well, no. Do you know who he is though? A little bit, yeah. I know of Okay, him. so Brendan is the was sort of sergeant at arms of KU with Jason Hairston, and now is the director of conservation, director of um, chief hunting officer, if you want to call it that. He's a brass tax kind of guy. Tell you how it is, straight up. Uh, no real emotions about it. Just says how it is. And yeah, we got him to well up on the side of the mountain. And then we got him to well up in front of a camera. And uh, 
he's, he, he relayed to me a conversation that he had with somebody saying, have you met that Blood Origins guy? And he's like, yeah, don't put, let him put a camera in front of your face because <laughs> just all of, automatically causes tears to occur. So, <laughs> I, You know, it, it's funny. I feel like normal American population perception of hunters is that sort of brash, like don't, you know, I'm out, you know, we are out for the kill and you know that that's just what the game is and you're a tough person if you're out there hunting mm-hmm. um and i won't be shy to say that i've shed tears before during after hunts i mean just i mean it's there being on camera <laughs> and having those tears go though that that shows your ability to get their vulnerability um and get them to express something deep inside i mean well i think vulnerability is one of the things that you know we're afraid of sometimes it's as a man specifically and but you know women are part of our hunting community too um but as a man you're not supposed to show emotion you're not supposed to be vulnerable and when you start digging down to the root cause of why we hunt for the most part it becomes a little emotional because it's tied to memories it's tied to the people that brought you to hunting it's tied to your family it's tied to your grandfather your grandmother your mother your aunt your uncle the um hold on let me see if i can Sorry, I just heard a noise, but I know you can't hear that anyway. So, um, yeah, it's just, it's, it's a little vulnerable in that you, it's tied to emotions. And sometimes it, it comes out as crying. Um, sometimes it comes out as passion. Sometimes it comes out as frustration. Sometimes it comes out as anger. Um, but it's just a, you know, we've developed a, a skill about how we interview people. We've developed a skill of how we prep people and um, we're very purposeful in that lead in. We don't just, I'm not going to just show up at Jason's door tomorrow and say, okay, sit down in front of a camera and let's go and pour your heart out. Now, have we done that in the past? Yeah. In the beginning, that's how it was. But now we do a lot more prep and we feel like we get a lot more in-depth stories. Uh, No, not in-depth stories. We get, a lot of, we get a lot more of the heart out of that individual than we would typically. Well, Robbie, why don't you tell everyone what Blood Origins is? Like, what, what is the, the concept? Yeah. Storytelling documentary project showcasing the heart of hunting. And we're about to evolve into our next phase. In the next month, Five, uh, Blood Origins will become a 501c3. And because of that, we've changed our mission slightly. And the mission is changing to conveying the truth around hunting. And it fits with what we do and how we do it. It's the why about hunting. It's the who of our community that we've done up until now. And we focus less on, you've seen little bits and drabs through social media. We focus less on the what. And now we're interested in focusing on the what and marrying the, the why and the who to that. So that sounds a little abstract, but the what is the conservation work that hunters do across the planet. 
the who to that what is the people that are doing the project, whether it's the anti-poaching unit or the outfitter or the hunter. And the why is explaining the, what's happening on the ground and why they are doing it or why it's important to them. So it's gonna be marrying conservation and storytelling together. We'll still do what we do, but we'll just add another couple of elements to what we do. Well, congratulations on the 501c3. That's uh, uh, our next chapter as well is to, to go to that and hoping for um, by the end of this year, uh, the pandemic sort of put that on hold for a second, but um, we'll be hitting it that aspect strong here pretty soon. Uh, why, why is it so important for you to tell what the truth is about hunting? Like, well, because I think today's uh, media, unfortunately, is it's almost based on what you see is what you get. Um, nobody does any fact checking anymore. Nobody decide. You know, they're making opinions based on content that they see. And so, I felt like we needed to put content out there that showcased who we are as hunters. You know, whether it's videos, whether it's talking heads, whether it's narratives, whether it's uh, pictures of people and the project was built for the non-hunting audience it wasn't built for the hunting choir so what we're trying to do is just put content out into the digital space that allows that non-hunter to see a different side of hunting you know we started this conversation by talking about a perception around hunting we can you know talk until the cows come home about why we have that perception is it due to disney is it due to hollywood is it due to our own our own um, manifestations, our own fault, the industries, pigeonholing, you name it, we can go down many, many rabbit holes. But I think that there is a need for, uh, there's a need for a narrative that conveys the truth about hunting. And that's what we aim to do. Um, and we're gonna aim to just continue to do what we do um, and just keep growing essentially we're not in it for we're not in it for fame we're not in it for money we're just in it to allow my kids and your kids one day and grandkids to be able to hunt still um and that's a massively as braxton mccoy would put it it's a sisyphean task that we are endeavoring to do but somebody has to do it yeah. So I guess the big thing for me is when I think, and you already sort of alluded to this, that when I think hunting shows, I think of what I grew up watching. I think about what is really for the most part on TV, mainly with a few minor exceptions, which is very serious setup. Uh, we've watched this animal, we know where they're at, we go, we hunt it, it's maybe just a couple days, it might be a whole season, yep. we kill the animal, trophy shot, we're all excited, you know, that's what it is. Yours is 100% completely different, yet it's right. still about the same topic. Right. What gave you that idea to go that route? Because I didn't build it for hunters. What you just described is built for hunters. This was built for a non-hunting audience. It was built for something different. It was built for a different purpose. Those hunting shows are built for, uh, those hunting shows are built for fame. 
Those hunting shows are built to sell product. Ours is built for a message. I would argue real quick with you that your show is not built. When you say your show is not built for hunters, um, I'm a hunter. I love your show. Absolutely. Um, lifelong hunter. And I feel like more hunters should be watching what content you're putting out there because you're putting the important messages about why people hunt out there. Um, I, I feel like, and this isn't all hunters, not all hunters go through all the same stages, but mm-hmm. you know, everyone sort of goes for the most part, everyone goes through stages where, uh, when they, when it comes to hunting, you know, they want to kill something. Um, there's almost like a bloodlust that, you know, they think that's what sure. it's about. And then it starts to evolve into spending time outdoors or working in, uh, in a way that's conservation. So sure. um, I'm sort of in that phase with my hunting where, you know, white-tailed deer, I mean, that's the main driver for the hunting community in, in, uh, in the United States. You know, I'm not just, I'm not a, a it's brown, it's down guy. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, I'm looking to build age structure, what's best for the herd uh, in the area I'm hunting, things like that. Um, so to hear and to see those messages, even though I've already sort of contemplated in my head why I hunt, what's the reasoning behind going out, it makes, you, makes me think even more. So I feel yeah. like it's important for more hunters to really look in deep inside and why is it that I'm doing exactly what I'm doing? Yeah. Indirectly. You're right. Indirectly hunters can watch our pieces, listen to what we say and take something from it. Right. They can, they can take a deeper meaning, a deeper look at to why they hunt the things that make them love what they do. And hopefully that allows them to communicate those ideals better to the neighbor next door to their kids yeah absolutely you're right um so and and you know if we took it one step further are we producing a product that can influence that evolutionary pathway of a hunter that is in the you know teenage age group right now is in these early 20s and and not to say that there's nothing wrong with sitting in the brown and down, you know, I want, you know, bloodlusting type scenario because I went through it, you went through it. But it's also, it, there's nothing to say that you shouldn't also be thinking a little bit more um, about what you're doing, uh, you know, elevating your thought processes about what hunting is. You know, one of the things you mentioned earlier was this idea of, and I'll steal your question from you. Um, h- how am I relating to this rural American lifestyle through our messaging? And I think it's because that the rural American lifestyle is built on ideals of freedoms, of access, of things like the Second Amendment, things that I used to never have. From a country where I came from, in, from South Africa, it's very strict gun controls, hardly any public land, lived in a city of eight and a half million people, didn't think about hunting, didn't know what hunting was, to now being an American citizen that can drive 20 minutes up the road and load my rifle and go walking on a piece of public ground and it's completely 
a part of who I am as an American. That's why I think I can relate or not really relate, but I can rather see what you have. And I've got a deeper, I've got a deep appreciation for it. Right. And I don't want to lose it. And now that I've got two young boys being raised in this country, that's what I want for them. So, I mean, you have that appreciation because you see it now and, and you, you recognize that you didn't have it in South Africa. Do you ever think that maybe some Americans think, I want to say think, do you, do you feel, do you ever think yourself that maybe Americans sort of take that aspect for granted that we have public land? Of course. Why would you, why would you, why would you have a, here's a question for a lot of people. Why would you not be grateful for something you didn't have a perspective on losing? You can't really, you can't really shape gratitude. You can't really shape gratitude until you've actually lost something. And so the ideal of like eroding gun rights, I've been there, I've done that, I've gotten the t-shirt. So even though I'm, you know, I've never really made a political stance on any podcast and, and nor will I, and nor will our project, when a gun right is undermined, essentially, I understand what it's doing. Like I've been there, I've done that. The chip is, is, you know, death by a thousand cuts. And so I've lived in a place that has no access to public grounds. Now I'll caveat by saying, not that I was looking for it because I lived in a town of eight and a half million people. It's just what we lived in. It's like talking to someone in LA who doesn't really have a concept of public grounds. They don't go anywhere. You know, they're going to go, they may have a better idea of public grounds because they can go to Joshua Tree and go camping. That's, that's not what we did. And so, you know, being grateful for what you have here, I think you need to come at it from a perspective of a place like where I come from where I didn't have those things. That's very well articulated. Um, and, and I mean, t- to be honest, you know, growing up, I mean, I, I very much took for granted public land. Um, you know, I mean, with within a mile of my family's cabin, cabin where we have uh, some property where we do most of our hunting, we have uh, state game lands, two different state game lands within a mile. And I, I remember spending a lot of time there and I definitely took it for granted. And then all of a sudden in, you know, 2015, 2016, the idea of selling federal land started, you know, propping up and it was like, Oh, wait, you know, we, we could, we could lose that. I was planning at that point um, to do an elk hunt in Montana on national forest. Um, So the idea of not being able to do that because, you know, it sold off to the highest bidder that opened my eyes to the fact that we, if we don't, try to save it if we don't actively advocate for it we could lose it and that's something that never crossed my mind you know for the first 20 years of my 30 years of my life so that i that is very well articulated on your part Um, have you seen lands around you disappear uh personally (laughs) 
Public land, no. Um, I have seen quote unquote wild lands disappear, forests, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. farms um, in the area, you know, in, in southwestern Pennsylvania. We have a very much growing um, suburban life. Um, and because of that, you know, when, uh, you know, when a family ages out of, of farming, uh, the kids don't sure. want to keep that going. So they sure. sell to the highest builder, which is, uh, you know, ho- home builders, yeah, yeah. Um, which is actually the driving force of what we're trying to do with Conserve the Wild is we're trying to limit those impacts as much as we can. Um, so it would be, you know, a grand scheme goals for us is to actually when places like that are going to be sold to actually try to either have it donated or buy it so that mm-hmm. we can prevent that from happening. Sure. Um, so yeah, I mean, that threat is definitely real. Uh, I want, I, I need to circle back sort of to the start a little bit and, mm-hmm. um, your first episode is you, uh, yeah. Blood Origins. And Unfortunately, <laughs> I see. I I disagree because I feel like when you when you watch that one, it really sets the stage for the rest of them and why the sh- the tone for the show. Um, you mentioned you grew up, you know, with eight and a half million people as your neighbors. I mean, when. When did hunt? When did when did the hunting bug catch you? When I arrived in Mississippi. So my my family steeped in hunting heritage, right? So I knew about hunting. I had trophies on the wall. I had lots and lots and lots of stories. My grandfather was a prolific storyteller, so he wrote down all of his stories. I went pigeon hunting with him once, and my dad once, and that was just on a sunflower field. But that was it. There was. As I said, there wasn't any like discussions. There wasn't any like fire, you know, beside the fire talk about hunting. The thing that you did in South Africa, if you were in an overnight, you were, you went to the game parks, right? You went to Kruger National Park and you went and looked at wildlife. You didn't go hunt wildlife because it was, you know, you're blue collared South African and you just needed a friend on a farm that, you know, potentially you could hunt on. Um, so that hunting bug didn't really commence until I met a six foot five redneck in Mississippi. And he told me, let's go hunt whitetail deer. And he gave me a lawn chair and stuck me under a cedar tree and said, shoot, whatever comes by. <laughs> um, but that's, you know, that's, you know, almost mimics a lot of people start into hunting. Um, so I don't have some poetic way of how I got into hunting. It's just as the, as you, as you saw in my story, it's almost in my blood, right? It is in my blood. My grandfather was a hunter. My dad was a hunter. And I'm the only hunter left. My father doesn't hunt anymore. My brother's never hunted. Grandfather's long gone. And uh, it's funny, a little bit of behind the scenes of that first episode. I always had this idea, and I, and I still haven't compromised on it, is that the place of where we film these episodes is very important because it resonates in the message if a person doesn't have a specific place that it resonates with them, we'll just do it, you know, at their house or whatever it is. But I felt like I needed to have an element of South Africa built into my story. And so we filmed my around a fire in the middle of June in Mississippi in a cow pasture. And it was burning hot. It was blazing. (laughs) 
Um, Jeez, it was hot. And we didn't know what we were doing, man. We had this idea of like, we want, I know what, I knew what I wanted to, to look like. And I found the cameraman, I explained to him, I told him what I needed him to think about. And then we just did it. And it turned out better than I expected. And I was like, okay, I think we've got something. And then when I put it in front of Will Primos, luckily enough, he looked at me and, was, and his first response to me was, how did you film this? And I was like, okay, we've got something here. So that's it. That's how it started. You mentioned that, that first episode and you mentioned the, that hunting itself is in your blood. Like your mm-hmm. family has a history. Everyone's family has a history of it. No doubt. But in, in that first episode, um, and for anyone out there, a little bit of spoiler alert, but um, hopefully this gets you to go out and watch it if you haven't already. You mentioned a letter that your grandfather wrote. Yeah. Can you, in that letter, he sort of, he alludes to the idea that he's glad that you came to hunting on your own. He mm-hmm. didn't want other people to think that he pushed you into it. Why would, it why was almost a sense of humor. It was almost like his Russian sense of humor because I, you know, at that time, again, living where we lived and him living in Mozambique, hunting was done, gone, wasn't available anymore. And yeah, as he said, you know, I would have been accused of leading you astray. And there was almost a little bit of jest, but also a little bit of like tongue in cheek. Right. And then he goes and the next sentence is in, uh, I'm glad you came to hunting by yourself. Otherwise I would have been uh, accused of leading you astray. It must be quote unquote in the blood. And you would have thought that, I don't know if I've I've told anybody this, but you would have thought that the rest of the letter, he would have waxed poetically about sunsets and sunrises and elephants and Buffalo and everything. Right? No, he talked about gun safety and for a page and a half. Just old school, like respect the gun. This is your first lesson and you need to respect the gun. So, Which honestly, probably in my mind, uh, as a hunter safety instructor, um, was way better than him just waxing poetic about the sunsets. Well, I still have that gun that he mentions in that letter. I've got it here in America. That's great. Um, you know, I mean, you can, you can enjoy those sunsets. You can sort of uh, feel the poem in your mind, see the poem in your mind as you're looking at those sunsets hunting. But if you don't have proper gun safety, you might not see any more sunsets after that. So um, I'm glad that he went on for as long as he did about yep. that. Uh, you mentioned that your first experience was sit in the lawn chair. Here's yep. a gun shoot a deer that walks by yeah um how how'd that work out for you honestly that first hunt uh didn't see a deer and then i was like well i'll just walk around and as i walked out first hunt ever i probably you know knowing deer now and uh being a steward of qdm probably a 125 130 inch buck steps out in the road 30 yards from me doesn't know I'm there. I'm like, oh, lift the gun, put the scope on him, pull the trigger, click. He looks up at me, runs away. I'm like, what is wrong with this gun? So I take it to my buddy and I'm like, dude, your gun's broken. (laughs) And it's a semi-automatic 
308. He's like, what are you talking about? Here, watch. And he, he racks it, same bullet, picks it up, just shoots at a random tree, boom, goes off. I'm like, I don't know, what, what, what did I do? What's wrong? He goes, well, what did you do when you went into the, into the stand? He said, well, you told me not to make any noise. So as I racked that thing, I just like eased it forward. And I must have left like an eighth of an inch. But let's be honest, if I'd shot that buck the first time ever hunting, I would have been completely ruined. Um, and it was also the Lord telling me that there's going to be many, many, many misfires in my career in which I was going to miss many, many, many big bucks and big animals. So just be prepared because this is how it goes. You know, the idea of shooting a buck that size for someone like me in Pennsylvania, that's, that's not, that's not a common occurrence for a buck to be that big running around the woods. Um, But the idea of, you know, get of, killing an animal on your first hunt or even first hunt of the season. I mean, don't get me wrong. That's my goal. Um, but I've only ever done that one time in my life. And that season, I honestly felt lost mm. um, because it, to me, it feels more of an accomplishment when you put the time in, it's more of a sure. journey throughout that entire season. Um, I mean, do you feel the same way? I mean, is it? Yeah, it's, it's the, it's the old adage, right? Effort equals reward. That's what I'm teaching my eight year old right now. We're growing vegetables in the backyard. Hey, Leo, are these vegetables going to taste better out of the backyard or are they going to taste better when they come out the grocery store? Oh, these ones will taste better. Well, why, why are they going to taste better? Because they're going to be fresh. And I was like, yeah, that's true. But they're also going to be because you worked hard to grow them. You put in all this effort and you're going to reap the rewards from it. And that's the same truth for hunting. You know, there's a lot of people out there that like to go out on the first day, shoot their deer and get over and done with. Nothing wrong with that. Everyone's got a different journey, right? You've got to remember that. And we're not going to pigeonhole any hunter into what that's supposed to be. Uh, a lot of people want, like a Jim Shockey will tell you that he wants to go on a 14-day hunt and he wants to kill that animal on the 13th day at the 11th hour. Because that's what he's craving, right? And, and, and honestly, when you start thinking about that, for somebody like you or somebody like Jim, that, and I've thought a lot about it, that hundredth of a second, that thousandth of a second, that, that, that difference between life and death, that chasm between life and death because of that thousandth of a second trigger pull, right? If you could hold yourself in that moment of that entire building up to that moment, to that animal, to that exact point of time would you pull the trigger if you could hold yourself in that moment no i i i wouldn't i would stay in that spot as long as possible because right? that's the some of folks for a lot of us that's the feeling we're after right that mm. that 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 moment it's like oh and that moment dissipates instantaneously and the feeling dissipates instantaneously when that trigger goes off or the trigger breaks some of us are doing it for food, don't get me wrong. And pulling the trigger is just the start of that journey, you know? Um, but there's a lot of us that if you just really dissect the emotions and the feelings and the adrenaline and the, the spikes of, of hormones, that intersection 
where it is, it is a chasm between life and death. You may not take that leap. You may just hold yourself in it. Just, just food for thought. Yeah. I like that you keep mentioning trying not to, you know, you don't want to pigeonhole hunters because I'm, I'm a big advocate of, you know, hunt your hunt, whatever it is that, that makes you happy. That's, I mean, that, sure. if, that's what hunting should be. It should be about happiness. It should be about enjoying what you're doing. So whatever that is, that that's what you should do. But I, I also like the fact that your show and, and what you're saying is also look a little deep inside. Uh, you know, is there something that you could enjoy more than what you're currently doing now? And if there is, maybe start taking steps that direction, start going down that path. Um, you know, and that could even be, you know, regressing, uh, to or no, I, regressing is the wrong word. Um, you know, maybe moving back a phase from where you are now. Um, you know, as a culinary teacher and, and someone that is big into food, um, I am as much as I love the journey, as much as I love the entire activity of hunting and, and spending many days afield, I also have find myself extremely passionate and enjoying moments of cooking that food and either eating it myself or feeding it to other people. Mm -hmm. um, that is something that, that get, brings me great joy. Um, you know, just this past weekend, I, I cooked up a venison roast for uh, my aunt and uncle and, and cousin and to see them devour it and tell me how good it was. And, you know, that brought me a lot of joy to know sure. that I can provide for people, you know, uh, in my life, friends, family, that kind of thing. No doubt. Absolutely. So as, I'm a, as a successful hunter yourself, how does your family deal with eating wild game? Is that something they're very open to? Is that something that was a little bit of maybe a, a little bit of work on your part? No, well, the boys have been raised on it, right? Um, Lisa, as I've gotten better at cooking it, the more she enjoys it, right? So in the beginning, as if, as everyone, every piece of venison I cook tastes like liver. <laughs> and luckily she likes liver. So um, yeah, the better I'm good, the better, just like from a culinary perspective, the better cook I become, the better it tastes. And uh, we've got a couple of recipes now that are just slam dunk recipes. And every time we eat it, you know, I make sure that the boys when they eat it, they understand where the food's coming from. And it's like, okay, what are you eating? Oh, I'm eating deer. Okay, where'd the deer come from? Oh, daddy, you hunted it. And I said, yeah, daddy killed that deer. And this is, you know, the meat that comes from it. So that you know where your food's coming from. I'll give you a, a little story around that. So I think it was my wife's, my wife's birthday and we went out to local little seafood shack or whatnot. So both boys, myself, I think Leo's six, so Eli's four at the time. And I'm trying to convince Lisa that she, I need another gun and over dinner. And uh, I'm trying to tell her that this is going to be hers. This is going to be her gun. And without prompting, the six-year-old Leo looks at my wife and goes, Mom, you don't have a gun? Because he was proud. He had his own little daisy BB gun. You don't have a gun? And she's like, no, no, no. And again, without prompting, he goes, well, how are we supposed to kill the deers? 
And then right after it, again, no prompting it from me, he said, how are we supposed to eat? And I was like, yep, done. Best dad <laughs> in the world award right there. Uh, and I got the gun. So um, all's well that ends well. But yeah, it's just, they know where their food comes from. Uh, they like it. As Leo says, he makes, you know, when we have like little quail legs, um, we grill them up. He makes a, a quail bone graveyard next to his plate. So yeah, it's just ingrained in them. Well, when we get done recording, I need to find out your secrets as someone who will be a father at some point in the future. So um, to, to raise kids that understand where their food came from and, and that hunting can be a good thing. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to need some secrets from you on that. Um, yeah. Well, look, let's just talk about that for a second because I'm okay. sure there's a bunch of people that have kids, but I was very, it all depends on your kid, right? Mm -hmm. My kids are very soft. And I say that soft in that they're very soft mannered and they're very gentle and they're, and so they haven't killed a deer yet. He, my Leo's eight now. Uh, he hasn't shot a rifle. He shot a 410 shotgun, shot a 2-2, but he's just not in it. He doesn't like to go shooting. Just, I'm not going to push him. I'm not going to force him. I'm not going to do anything like that. But I introduced, I was very careful about understanding how I killed something in front of him. Because I wanted them to understand the, you know, the responsibility of what was happening and understand the gravity of the moment. And, and so what I did was I went, I, I do a little bit of trapping and I use trapping as their uh, introduction to animals and then dad killing animals. And I explained why we were trapping, you know, for the turkey nest predation and for quail and explain that whole cycle that if we didn't have, you know, somebody taking care of predators, those predator numbers would go up. There would be no turkeys, you know, yada, yada, yada. And then I was very careful about how I executed the shot in that if you know anything about trapping, um, typically a headshot is obviously instantaneous, but is very visceral. Um, and so I chose to shoot in the heart, very ethical shot, but the, the, the boys could understand that, you know, the animal was dying a very peaceful death. Uh, versus the visceralness of blood everywhere and whatnot, nervous system going um, out of control. So yeah, that's the way that I did it. Um, obviously, I'm a scientist, so was I came from it from a scientific perspective. And but again, you just have to read your kids. You know, each to his own. There's no special book or anything like that. You just got to you know believe in what you believe in and fulfill your kids out. That, that's definitely probably good and profound advice. Let's, I want to get back to Blood Origins. Who was your favorite person that you videoed? Like what, what, is, what episode was your favorite that you're like, you know what, this was, this was the best one we've done? Whoa. I get asked that question every time we get on a podcast. And um <laughs> I try to not say the same answer, obviously, but uh, it's tough. There's obviously some that stand out in my mind, but you asked a little differently. You're like, which one stood out to you? Mm -hmm. The one that stands out to me was 
season four, episode one, which is Jeff Rowley. So Jeff Rowley is a professional skateboarder out of Los Angeles. We flew out to Los Angeles. We went into the desert and we filmed him. And when I filmed him, I didn't think we had anything uber special. I thought we had a great episode, got great content. And he even started, when we started filming him, because Jeff has been on camera a lot. And when you have people that have been on camera a lot, it tends to get a little, you tend to find them that, that they know what they want to say. And when somebody wants to say what they want to say, I don't want to hear it because I want to hear something different. And so he said to me, it's like, I've been, I've heard from a lot of interviewees that I'm very difficult to break down. And I was like, hmm, okay, let's see. And without him knowing, we peeled a bunch of onion layers back. And it's probably one of the most authentic episodes. And all of our episodes are authentic, but Jeff's is really like gritty authentic. It's his English accent. It's the B-roll we used. Um, just gritty authentic. Even the ending when he's using like an orange peel to clean his teeth. And he's saying, look, I've got crooked teeth because all Englishmen have crooked teeth. Um, that's an authentic episode. So if, you've ne if you haven't watched Jeff's yet, Jeff's is strong. Uh, I think as... What's your favorite? Ooh. Um, uh, my favorite has to be... Oh, one no, let me say, what sticks out in your mind? What sticks out to me? So there are two that I actually just watched... Um, this morning and actually um i watched these two with my wife um to show her uh what why i was interested in, in speaking with you and both of them uh were in season one um uh let me think here um trying to think of their names one was i'm gonna have to edit this down what was it about uh one was about um was a woman from michigan joanna uh, dot yes yes and just her her story um about being adopted about um you know not being originally from this country uh, and being a woman uh and showing that diversity that hunting um, is yeah, hunting isn't is defined becoming. by a bumper sticker on the back of your car. Yes, that was ex that's an exact quote from that episode that I I, I see that um, now. I will say most of my friends are white, you know, hunting friends are white males um, because I grew up in hunting, so I tend to gravitate towards them, but. Or the the sport of hunting, the idea of hunting is becoming more diverse, and I think sure. that's a wonderful thing. Um, I'm also a, a QDM steward. Um, I've had on the podcast previously Hank Forrester, who started mm -hmm. the uh, was one of Field the driving forces of Field the Fork. Yep. Um, and I gave in my first sort of public talk under this uh, locally. Um, I talked about asking people that you normally wouldn't ask to hunt to, to come hunt um, because that's the way we can solidify 
hunting in our culture and keep it for, as you say, for your kids, for, for my kids, so that they have that opportunity, whether they choose to go for it or not. Mm-hmm. Um, the other one that really spoke to me, I think might have been the exact next episode. Maybe this is just because I watched, watched them just this morning, um, but was in the duck woods of Louisiana. Oh, it's actually Mississippi. Mississippi. Okay. Uh-huh. Joey. Yes. Just the way that, that he spoke about God um, and coming, you know, coming to that realization of how he needed to change and, and live his life in the woods. That speaks to me because, and, and I, I've told my wife this before, when I go hunting, when I'm in the woods, that's, that's my church. Mm-hmm. Um, that's where I do my greatest thinking. That's mm-hmm. where, and probably why I do my greatest thinking, that's where I hear God's voice the loudest. Yeah. Um, so to hear someone else articulate the exact same thoughts, um, just it, that is very profound to me. Very profound. Well, imagine filming it and listening to him as he was saying it. Oh, it was just epic. And we were way back there. We were like a mile and a half back. And I don't know if it comes across in the, in the, in the, in the film or not, but the tree that he's standing on is the tree that he gave his life over to Christ on. That's why we went to that spot uh, in Panther Swamp, actually. Panther Swamp, Mississippi. Yeah, it, it just, it, it's hard to, it's hard to say that, for me to say, like, there's a, a favorite episode that I've watched but it's easy with every episode to see that profound effect, to, to feel that emotional tug, to really relate to that person. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, w- you know, going back to Joanna, I'm, I'm not adopted. I'm not, you know, I was born in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I've lived around here my entire, in Southwestern Pennsylvania, my entire life. Um, but to still, still to, to hear her talk about why she goes out and what hunting has enabled her um, to be able to do and her then switching from being a new hunter to then being a mentor to someone else who's new to hunting. I mean, that's, that even still speaks to me, you know, you would on the surface, you would look at her journey and my journey and say, they're completely different yet there's still so much that intertwines that's, that is the same. Yeah, everyone has their own story, but there's a connectedness between all of us. And that's the point of the project. So here's my question. How, I mean, cause Strickland is on there. Um, uh, Lake Pickles on there, right? Um, some, you have some bigger names in the hunting industry that have, that have been featured. Um, I don't know, features the right word, interviewed. Mm-hmm. Um, but then like, Joanna, like, how do, how do you decide? Like, how do you come across these people that not only have a good story to tell, but also um, are just able to articulate their thoughts so well? Yeah, you don't know if somebody's going to articulate their thoughts very well. You have no, no idea until you arrive and you put a camera in their face. Uh, in the beginning, it was whoever story we could get. And, uh, and interestingly, Joanna's came to me via Matt Ross from QDMA up in, in New York. 
we had talked to Matt already. I had Matt lined up. We were going to do his episode. And he called me and he said, hey, I remember this Asian woman in Ohio doing, you know, NWTF type stuff. And I was like, okay. And that's how we did it. We just, you know, in the beginning, we cold called. We cold called. If we thought, if I thought it was an interesting person, I cold called them saying, this is what I'm doing. This is what I want to do. Are you interested? Um, today, we still find the odd story that we go and pursue, but now it's more of the family. So in our, in our logo, we have this DNA family tree that's supposed to represent my grandfather to my father, to me, to my grandkids, to my kids, to my grandkids one day. But what it's turning out to be is the blood origins family. So everyone is an originator. If we start with you, you're an originator. And because of who you are and what you've allowed us to do, you become invested in us and invested in our project. You tell us who's the next story. You're going to do the vetting for us. You're going to become our champion and you're going to find somebody that has a good story because that's what we want to keep doing and is it has integrity and has the values that we're after in the project. So that's how it works. Now um, we find, we do find individual projects, uh, projects, individuals still that are originators. Um, but we're on to like second, third, fourth nodes now. That that's awesome. That's a very um, efficient way, like you said, to make to go through the vetting process. You know, if, if you if you have talked to someone that that you know has that good story to tell, and they know someone that has a good story to tell, that's that makes your job of finding people a little bit easier. That's right, and they do the introductions and lay the foundation and groundwork, and we just walk in and do what we do. So as someone, I mean, I'm interviewing you right now. I'm trying to, I have been for the past year, trying to hone my interview skills yeah. and, and become better, which uh, listening back to a couple of my earlier episodes, I know I'm better. I'm still not where I want to be, but I know I'm better. <laughs> but you have a way to get people to speak emotionally that I don't think I've ever seen and really be able to speak from their heart. How, how do you do that? They listen. Okay. When they speak. So when we start an episode or we start an interview, I have a initial thought of where I want to go. Like I've thought through like, where am I starting? But after that, I don't know where I'm going because I let the interview dictate where I want to go and I'll use what they say against them. Dare I say against them, I'll use what they say to needle myself into another place. I'll see an opening. I'll see a gap that I want to pursue. I want to shove myself into and I'll just use their words back to them because I'm listening very, very intently to what they're saying. And I'll just explore it and I'll dig. And I tell them, I said, look, we're going to just let you go. And it's going to be uncomfortable because sometimes we're just going to, you're going to stop talking. And if you, if you really have stopped talking, then just look at me and I'll pick up and, and help nudge you and move you where I need you to go. But oftentimes we make them sit in their own discomfort. So that they start thinking, because I want it to be a thought process. So I make them sit there and think. And 
you actually, if you're looking for ideas for improving your interviewing skills, you actually did it when you started. And I noticed you hit the record button really early. And I think you need to do that a lot more because the best stuff comes from natural conversation. And the best stuff we're getting sometimes is when they believe the cameras are off. And I've just moved, right? Like I'll move from left to right. And in that moment, they'll think that, oh, we've stopped the camera rolling and we're just going to reposition, but we've left them all rolling. And we'll just start a conversation. And as they start talking to me, I'll just point to the camera and they'll just like kick into that gear. Um, sometimes it takes two minutes for them to kick in. Sometimes it takes two hours. Um, and then at the end, because we've riled them up so much, <laughs> we typically are typically always ask, is there anything that's on your heart that you just want to get off your chest? And I'm telling you what, just that simple question, the stuff that comes out of their mouths is like, I've told one person, one non hunter, when I said that she was like, actually, yes, I do have something I want to say. I was like, roll that camera. <laughs> Cause it's about to come down. <laughs> So that's about it. Hope that helps. That does. I have tried to do my best to come up with thoughtful questions uh, for you, for every person that I've interviewed. But it seems like the best answers I get are when it's just a question that just popped in my head. You know, what do, what do you do? Like, what, what's the, what is the, the purpose of, of what you're doing. You know, um, when I ask someone that and they just sort of, like you said, they just sort of start going, they just sort of start mm -hmm. rolling of, of why they feel it's important or why they do what they do. Um, so I would, I, I would just take that one step further and yeah, you've got a list of questions. Maybe do this to the next guest, try it out. You've got a list of questions you want to ask them and all depends on your guest, right? You want your guest to be conversational. You don't want it to be just a question, answer, question, answer, question, answer. Depends on your guest. But if your next guest, you have a list of questions, maybe you start with your first question and you never get to any of the other questions. Because the, his answer or her answer dictates where you take the next question. That's good. That's profound to me. That is, that's good. Um, where, where do you see the concept of hunting going in the future? You know, you, you want it to be around for your kids. You want them mm -hmm. to have the opportunity if they choose to go that, you know, go the route of hunting. Where do you see it go? You know, my, I'd love to say that it doesn't go anywhere. Um, but I would be naive in that answer. Hunting may go underground. You know, it would be still legal, but just nobody knows about it. Um, I think the, the biggest challenge with hunting disappearing or hunting going underground or whatnot is very quickly, very soon, the connections that we're trying to articulate to the anti-hunting establishment around 
how hunting is beneficial to wildlife conservation, Pittman-Robertson Act, wildlife conservation in, in Africa, wildlife conservation in Pakistan. You know, that's gonna come to a head, and I don't know how it comes to a head, except with an all-out ban, and then, it, then it's almost like storytelling needs to get flipped on its head to say, okay, you wanted the ban, you got it. Now let's show you what you just did. Boy, that's scary to think about, um, especially in this country that has conservation efforts so intertwined and tied with hunting and mm -hmm. the money spent um, in the pursuit of, of animals. I will say one more thing. There may be, um, you know, what's happening is, for instance, this bill that's currently, it actually got debated on or brought, brought, got, got brought into committee in California today, SB 1175, which is a COVID-related act disguising a ban on African taxidermy being, being brought into the state of California. So let's just assume that that ban gets put in place. What that will do is it, it'll stop somebody bringing trophies home. Skulls, horns, capes, memories, essentially. And so it'll be a test for hunting. And there'll be probably a business that spins out of it. That is, okay, you cannot bring any trophies back. So is there someone in California that can almost make a replica for you that looks like the real thing? And that is going to have to be good enough if you want to keep hunting um, or until the regulations have changed. So I think that will be something that may occur in the next 10 to 15 years is that there's going to be a number of states or countries that enact bans on the importation of trophies. And are we going to let that stop us hunting or do we figure another way around it? I want to know how you personally feel about the idea of trophies. You, know, you said that there were, there were trophies on the walls whenever you grew up. Um, what, when you look at someone's trophy or, or maybe your trophy that is hanging on your wall, I mean, what comes to your mind? What do you think? What's your first instinct when you see that? Well, for us, obviously, as hunters, we see it as a memory. We see it as a reminder of the hunt, a reminder of the people, of the place and whatnot. And that's what's so difficult for the anti-hunting establishment to understand. They see it as a dead animal on the wall, right? And there's no doubt it's a dead animal. Um, but it's a celebration of, of that life that we took. It's, you know, it's, a, it's something that would have disintegrated and gone into the ground if you just... You know, left it be could you have a photograph in its place sure but the photograph's also still a representation of the dead animal um, there's no difference between the photograph or the animal that's on the wall the trophy quote unquote on the wall unfortunately it's a symbol it's an it's an outcome it's unfortunately the trophy on the wall is the memory of an of something that has a much broader outcome, right? In America, hunting a white-tailed deer, the animal, the tag, the meat, 
you know, there's all these things that come behind it that disappear, essentially. Um, in Africa, you know, the, the outcome of somebody trophy hunting is, you know, so many different elements, economics, schooling, medical, you name it. Um, so, you know, the trophy on the wall is, what's the difference between a trophy on the wall and a basket that you picked up in Nepal? Why did you buy the basket? And why do you display it in your house? Because it's, it's something of a reminder of that place, of that, of that excursion, of that adventure. The only difference is that basket is inanimate and the trophy that I had on, that I have on the wall was something living, you know? So that's the only difference to me. Robbie, we've been talking for almost an hour now. I, we need to wrap this up, but I'm going to steal one of your questions. Okay. What's in your heart? What's on your heart? What do you need to just put out there? Um, I think that people, especially for the American audience that's listening to this, that there's, I would say that if you're a hunter, you need to start paying attention to what's being pushed through state regulations and state uh, legislatures, because there's a lot of things that are being moved around. Uh, I don't quite remember. It's on the tip of my tongue what the, um, the political term. Oh, rider, uh, riders, riders. That's the word I'm looking for. There's a lot of riders that are being put into certain legislative acts that are eroding the ability for us to hunt and for our kids to hunt and our grandkids to hunt. So that's on my heart right now. We did a little video about SB 1175. It was obviously in committee today. Um, it's so even, it's, it's ridiculous how it used to be called the iconic African species protected act protection act and online, you can see it redlined. They've cut that out and put COVID live markets yet the whole, uh, rider language is still present. Um, with no, you know, reasoning to what animal is on the rider and what, what isn't. So I would just say, pay attention to those things because it's happening all over the show. And there's one organization right now that, um, I pay specific attention to, and that's the Sportsman's Alliance. They push out some very good content. They've got their fingers on the pulse of those regulations that are happening on a state-by-state -state basis and really have a good uh, mechanism to let legislators and senators and congressmen know uh, what our feelings are. So that's on my heart right now. Um, just trying to stay calm when you look at that craziness and say, geez, what... You know, what are they even thinking? But we know what they're thinking. They're thinking through the lobby group that's, you know, paying them a lot of money. Um, like this one in California, it's actually um, supported by a animal advocacy organization called Social Compassion in Legislation. That's what it's called. Social Compassion in Legislation. You're like, that doesn't even make sense and you look into who they are and they're just like a astroturfing PETA advocacy organization. It, it makes me wonder who, how they get their funding, how they get their oh, money. Oh, simple. They're simple. They just, they, they, 
they pull at people's heartstrings. Yeah. Uh, I wish people would look a little deeper before they opened up their purse strings. Um, oh, yeah, to, for sure. To donate to the causes that they, on the surface, think are important. So to end this, Robbie, I want to give you the floor to ask me a question. Because oh, I've asked you plenty of questions. No, no, I, I want, want what's the, the one question? You've been sitting there, you've been answering questions, you've asked a few, but what's, what's that one question that, that, you're, that you're thinking about, that you've been thinking about, that you sure. feel like I need to answer? I'll ask you the same question I ask every single person we put on Blood Origins. I'll actually ask you three questions. Here we go. Ready? Okay. Yep. You don't get prepped for these questions, just like I don't prep my interviewees. These are the only questions I don't prep on. Number one, and succinct answers, please. Let's not drag this out. <laughs> Why is the Blood Origins Project important to the hunting community? It is important to showcase the depth of hunting to, in my opinion, hunters um, that may not think deep enough about why they participate in their chosen activity. Good. Good answer. There's no wrong answers, by the way. <laughs> All right. Next question. Why is it fun to hunt? that that's a hard one to answer succinctly um it is fun to hunt to be a part of the natural world to um watch the woods or field wake up to try to outsmart the prey that you are after and to return to my ancestral roots that never withered um, in my family um, to continue in the, the tradition of providing food for my family. That's fun? That's fun. Good. All right, simplest question, most complicated answer. Why do you hunt? A question that every hunter should be able to answer. Again, I feel a little tough to answer this succinctly. Um, first and foremost, uh, I hunt for food. I hunt for the challenge. I hunt to improve the environment for all wildlife. And I hunt to spend time with friends and family that I hold dear and a high amount of respect for. I like it. So what you're going to do for me tomorrow or whenever next you're strolling out in the woods. So we do these little uh, videos from our community called this is my why. And so I want you to turn your camera on to its highest settings. And I want you to go out in the woods, sit yourself under a tree, selfie video yourself, and exactly what you just described, record it. And at the end, say, my name is 
and Jason this Creighton. is my why. Okay. Jason Creighton, and this is my why. Okay. I can do that for you. I can do that send for it. you. And any of you other listeners out there, this is, you know, this is what we, that's, those are the kinds of things that we're interested in doing. We're interested in showcasing our community and we can't be everywhere telling everyone's blood origin stories, but we can capture people's why very easily. Everyone's got a cell phone. And so this is my call, my request for you to do that. Consider it done. I can definitely do that for you. Awesome. Well, Robbie, thanks for coming on. I really appreciate it. No, buddy. Loved it. Thank you much, much for that conversation. And that's it for today's episode. It was great to talk with Robbie. I can't thank him enough for taking time out of his day uh, away from his family to talk to me about hunting and his thoughts on everything that is involved. One thing that came from this conversation that I hope came through in the podcast, and I hope it's, it's starting to get the wheels turning in your head, but for me, it really came down to why do I hunt? We, as he said in the interview, we need to, as hunters, we need to be able to answer that question if someone would ask us. So it's really had me thinking about why do I hunt? What is the purpose behind what I do? And that is a question for me that has so many answers, some of them very simple, some of them very, very complex. So Look in the future, a couple weeks away, you're probably going to see another episode drop about why I personally hunt. Uh, So if anyone of you listening would like to share with me why you hunt, what your reasoning is, maybe you've already thought about this this question, and I have, but I've found that it's changing um, as, as I grow older. So if you would like to share that, shoot me an email, info at conservewild.org. Shoot me an email. Tell me why you hunt. Um, I will include some of these stories, possibly, depending on the stories, uh, in an episode, in that episode. So be on the lookout for that. Uh, If you have time, sign up for our newsletter. Go to conservewild.org and right at the top, type your name in, type your email address, and you will get no more than one email a month. And all it is is just some things that you may have missed if you didn't catch every episode of the podcast or uh, catch all of our blog posts that are being up there. Uh, We also throw a little bit of conservation news in there as well that you may have missed. So, Sign up for our newsletter. Last bit of information is the Great American Outdoors Act, which would fully fund the LWCF, Land and Water Conservation Fund. We're talking $900 million a year and also $9.5 billion to help with the backlog of maintenance on our public lands. It is up for votes in the Senate 
it will be hopefully approved and uh, then it will be over to the house contact your senators contact your house representatives and tell them you support that bill they should support the bill this is monumental type stuff uh, for a second time in, in pretty short order so if we can get fully funded lwcf which has never been done in the history of lwcf uh it would you know the things that can be done with this parks um you know maintenance conservation things it's just unbelievable so let your representatives and your senators know they need to vote yes to fully fund LWCS with CF with the uh, Great American Outdoors Act. Until next week, stay wild. Mm-hmm.